0: Uh, And everyone, if you would just turn to your neighbor, welcome them to service this morning. Let them know you're glad they're here. Well, it is so good to see all of you this morning. I don't know about you, but when we were getting to that that part of the song where it says, I will put my trust in you alone, I just felt the Holy Spirit on that. I, uh, I almost started crying. It's just I love when the Lord comes upon and gives an anointing uh, to certain phrases or certain parts of worship. Uh, man, it's good, it's good, it's good. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we will open up the word of the Lord together. I will say that this is a uh, a very mature topic, uh, one that is important that we wrestle with because the scripture brings it to us, and so we'll be talking this morning about uh, sexual immorality, but let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are here with us and that we can put our trust in you and not be shaken. Everything else we would try to put our trust in would break us, would fail us, but you do not. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will enlighten our ears, enlighten our eyes, and enlighten our hearts for the message this morning. I pray that we will not just be informed as we take some new information and add it to our shelf, but that will be transformed, this morning, in your name, Amen, Amen. In in Jewish culture, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Jewish culture today because Paul uh, does have uh, uh, an assumption and a background of Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, uh, the Song of Solomon's, which is a very the Song of Solomon, which is a very explicit book about the issues of sex and marriage. Twelve uh, year old boys were not allowed to or. 11 and, and below were not allowed to read it until they turned 12 when they were entering their, the, the situation of manhood, which the bat mitzvah describes. And so as we look at this, we, we can see that the 12-year-olds and above in the Jewish culture would begin to understand what Paul is talking about. Although it is a mature topic, the, uh, the, the culture of the Jews was very explicit and open and honest about these situations. And so we will be looking at what Paul says about sexual immorality this morning. I, I grew up in the church and uh, I was a pastor's kid in the church. And when I was in middle school and high school, you know, there was always this conversation in middle school and high school youth groups about sex and why you shouldn't do it and why it's bad and and all of these things. It was never given a good light when it comes to marriage. It was always this, oh my goodness, type of thing. Uh, But we live in a world where there's all kinds of sexual immorality that's just everywhere. You can't open up Facebook or a newspaper or look at a car magazine for the car that you want to see without seeing some, some things that you just don't want to see. When I was growing up in church, however, the, the issue of, of sexual immorality was always, don't do it, but rarely ever, why? I found myself as a kid always asking, well, why? Why does the Bible say that? Okay, don't do it, but, but why? And one of the things I've discovered in our lives as believers and in the world in general is that the world pornifies sex while the church sometimes demonizes it. And so there's a lack of full understanding as to what sex really is within marriage or within the church. What does the Bible say about this topic, both for the why of not sexual immorality, but the, the what of the goodness within marriage? What is the purpose? And so Paul, he gives an explanation through this passage, not only of why sexual immorality should be avoided, but why also sex is important within marriage. He talks about oneness. Now, you and I, we live in a very pornified society. The word in Greek for sexual immorality is porneia, and it covers over all aspects of sexual immorality, including what we would call pornography today. It's all-encompassing. It is a conversation that fills all aspects of sexual morality. But we live in a world where it is lauded, it is lifted up. It is not abnormal to see all kinds of disgusting things that we see in our world today. But we need to also understand and recognize that Paul in this letter is talking specifically to the church. When it comes to immorality of any kind, we've, we've talked about this prior, that the world can't help but live in immorality because they do not have the Holy Spirit within them. But we as believers, those who have confessed Christ as our Lord and Savior and believe that he has been raised from the dead for us and that his death covers our sin and blocks us from eternal death, we have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul talking to the church is encouraging them with this understanding in mind. The American church does in fact have a problem with sexual immorality. We, like the Corinthians, have allowed culture to infiltrate our understanding of what this is. We've, it's infiltrated our, our eyes, our minds, our hearts, and we've become desensitized in many aspects of sexual immorality. We like to pick out certain ones and point at those certain ones to the neglect of the ones that we may, in, in and of ourselves, be living into. Like I said, this is a really fun, heavy topic. I just love reading through the scripture because, man, you can't not deal with what the Bible tells us to deal with. And so Paul gives the answer to this question. Why should we flee from sexual immorality? Why should we flee from sexual immorality? Because he says that very phrase, flee from sexual immorality. But why? Now, I want to share, too, that Paul here is not demonizing sex. He is pointing out sexual immorality. He is not looking at the entirety of sex and saying, don't ever have it, don't ever deal with it, don't ever, you know, whatever. But he's talking specifically about the sexual immorality that was happening within the church and the culture at large. And so we have to understand, what is sexual sin? Sexual sin is any sexual activity outside of God's design for sex. Sexual sin is any sexual activity outside of God's design for sex. God, in fact, as he created humanity, man and woman, he designed sex. He did. It is something that we cannot avoid talking about, but often we do. But when you open up the Bible and you do what we do, go through exegetically, you can't avoid it. It would be easy for me to say, let's not talk about it, let's just move it over here. But that has, I think, hindered our kids. Not talking appropriately about sex has hindered our children. They don't even recognize what it is. And that's why the Jewish culture, I think, did it better than we did in that they integrated this into their teaching to 12-year-olds and above. So let us read 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. The word of the Lord. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So why should we flee from sexual immorality? As we look at this passage, verses 15 through 17, I think give us a good answer. And that answer is that there is power in oneness. There is power in oneness. A lie that our current culture believes that has sort of crept into the church is that sex is simply an animalistic, physical desire that we have that needs to be fed. It is one of those conversations that you would have with with the world outside of the church, and say, yeah, of course, you know, sex is supposed to be for your pleasure. Just go do it. Just live into your inhibitions. Go after it. But this lie has infiltrated how we see it. It has desensitized our idea of the power of oneness that the Bible talks about when it comes to sex. Here are some stats that I want to read to you, and these stats come from 2018. I think if we were to do this survey again, it would be worse. The stats on this hookup culture are staggering. For those of you who don't know what hookup culture is, it is those who have sexual interactions with people that they don't really know or know very little. It's not boyfriend and girlfriend stuff. This is just random sex. The stats on this hookup culture are staggering. One study reveals that 77.7% of college females admitted to hooking up. And for males, the percentage is even higher, 84.2%. This, this should, in some sense, stagger us to how we have failed culturally and integrated into the church the discussion and the topic of sex The lie perpetuates this pornification, this, it is only animalistic, it is just a physical thing. And when the Gnostics came into the church, they were telling the the church this same thing, as we saw last week, that what you do in your body does not affect your soul, the Gnostics would say. And they would tell the Corinthian church, it's okay, whatever you do with your body doesn't matter to God, because it doesn't affect your soul. Now that was something that many in the church in Corinth wanted to follow, and they began to, and that is why Paul deals with the issue with the Corinthians themselves. The reality is this, this is what we see throughout Scripture, Old to New Testament, that sex is physical, emotional, and spiritual. Understanding the power of oneness, we must recognize that it is physical, emotional, and spiritual. Again, in Jewish culture, they they had a really good concept of this. In our society, this would be very, very, very weird. But to them, it was normal. When they would get married, a couple would go under what's called the chuppah. And the chuppah represented the presence of God in their marriage. Here's where it gets strange for us. After they were saying their vows, they would then go to the home that the man had created for the family. The chuppah would follow them. They would be under the presence of the Lord as they were making this march to their house. And those who were part of the chuppah bearers would take the chuppah into the room, the bedroom of the couple and put the chuppah over their bed. Here's where it gets even stranger for us in our culture. They would leave the, the room and the couple would go into the room. They would consummate their marriage. But while they were consummating their marriage, the entire wedding party and all of those who were invited to the party were waiting outside of the house. Weird. And when the couple would come out, everyone would cheer. <laughs> yeah! Woo! Weird for us. But it's because they had a healthier understanding than we do of sex. If we understood what the Bible said, that shouldn't weird us out. That shouldn't be one of those, oh my gosh, oh, ooh, because they had a proper understanding that sex was physical, emotional, and spiritual. God wants to be involved in every aspect of our life. He wants to bless it, every aspect of our life, including our bed. Now that seems strange to us, but we don't understand it because we avoid the topic very, very well. But we can't. We cannot do this. Sexual love is the physical representation of the spiritual condition of one's exclusiveness. Sexual love is the physical representation. It is both emotional and physical as well as spiritual but it is to symbolize the exclusiveness that a couple has together. It is also, then, this idea of the power of oneness. Paul talks about how we are also one with the Lord, that we are one with the Lord. The the powerful nature of oneness does not just affect our marriage, but affects our relationship with Him. It is a representation of our exclusivity. We should be exclusive to the Lord being one with a person means we are no longer our own person in marriage you should no longer do what you want to without consulting your spouse it's selfish it's wrong and creates bitterness we are to not live into our passions whatever they may be without having a conversation with our spouse But often we don't live in that exclusivity, we still have a selfish compulsion to do as we want. But sex is a representation of the oneness, the connectivity that we are to have with our spouse. But there's also the reality of this spiritual oneness that we see in a triune type of idea. Because we are now one with each other, but together as two, we are one with the Lord. The Trinity shows up in so many different ways, in all different types of representations. It's not just when we think of the Trinity, we think of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He integrates this triunity in all of our lives, that we are to be one together, one to, and then one to the Lord. Marian Swords says this, belonging to Christ should mean that the believers give priority to Christ and His concerns rather than to their own questionable desires. Now, how often in marriage do we seek our spouse's opinions on our desires, on what we want to do? You know, sometimes when I'm driving past sheets, I go in and I grab a soda and I do that multiple times, it hinders our bank account. Hillary will say, why do you go to sheets so often? Because I want a soda. That's, (laughs) that takes our bank account way down continuously. Now you might think, well, that's not a big deal. I mean, shoot, I can go do that anytime I want. But it affects your whole family. Because we might not have enough money to get gas because I was filling my mouth with soda. I know it sounds interesting, it sounds weird, but when we look at the the beauty of oneness, we work together. Everything should be done together. And this is how we are to be with the Lord. It is an image of how we are to be. And when we use our freedom to do as we please, we are essentially cheating on Christ. When we look at the Lord and say, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to live into my sexual impulses without your input. I'm going to do this thing how I want to do it. Here, Paul is saying that we are cheating on Christ when we do that. Because our first priority as believers should be to seek God's desire for our lives. In every aspect, in every aspect of our lives, what is your desire, Lord? Because we are created to be exclusive to Jesus. We are to have no other spiritual lovers but him and him alone. But often we tend to love ourselves a lot more than we love Christ. We like to love the opinions of others more than we care about the opinions of Christ. We're failing in our exclusivity to him. It's important that we understand we are exclusive. Oneness is powerful in our relationship to Christ and those whom we have sexual intimacy with, whether a screen or a person. What we are in a way, when we are in a way splitting ourselves when we do that. Paul is very specific about how we are splitting ourselves, and he mentions the idea of prostitution, saying that when you are having sexual intimacy with a prostitute, you're taking part of yourself and giving it to that person. There's a split that happens within your heart and within your soul. The same thing happens where we see this hookup culture. They think it's just physical, but there's an emotional thing that transpires and a spiritual thing that transpires in that moment. But we don't have that understanding fully, especially in our culture, because we think it's just an impulse that we need to give into. to. We split because we're becoming one with another person. We're created to be one in a way that God has designed, not in a way the world says we should. We are created with a desire for a oneness of triunity, as I have previously mentioned. We're created for this desire of oneness. Now, we're going to talk about next week and in a couple weeks of this idea of singleness and celibacy there are people who are called to celibacy and singleness. That does not say that we're created for oneness of triunity, and if you don't, then you're not you are missing out. No, God calls specific people to singleness and celibacy. And there is a, a, a deep connection to the Lord that that person has that those who are married cannot have, as Paul tells us later on in this passage of Scripture but within us there's a desire for exclusivity. There's a desire to be the only one in someone's life, and that's a beautiful thing to have. We we have within us a desire to be one with the Lord, but we don't recognize it as such, and so we give into our own impulses. Now, I want to we we'll just pause here for a moment as we talk about this splitting and this sexual immorality. In First John 1, 9, we see that there is hope for everyone. No matter where you have fallen in your life, sexual sin or other sin, you, in fact, can be redeemed. You can be bought and made new under the blood of Jesus Christ. He can redeem all things. And so this is not one of those well, you're done, it's over, it's all gone, I'm, get out of here. No, God redeems all things. I didn't understand the redemption of all things when I was younger. When I was growing up in, in high school, particularly, there was this event called the silver ring thing. I'm sure many of you who are of my generation know exactly what I'm talking about. Where we would go to this church and we would, be told, about, we would to be told about sexual immorality and don't have sex because of all these things. And you're going to put this ring on today that has a Bible verse about sexual immorality where you're going to keep yourself pure and the purity culture that transpired. And, and that's really good stuff, but there was one aspect of it that really did not help anyone. Here's what they said. If you have sex before marriage and you have your your purity ring on, take it off and throw it in the toilet and dump it down there because you have no hope of ever coming back. I mean, as a high schooler, I was like, oh, Jesus, that's so scary. See, but that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, there was this sense that was just deep shame. And and what would happen with that person is if they threw their ring down the toilet, they would say, Well, (laughs) I'm done anyways, now I can go do whatever I want. That was not the that was not at all the message that the Lord was trying to say. There is redemption. But we must understand the, the pain and the splitting of the emotional, physical, and spiritual aspects. But when we repent and confess of our sin. God brings us back together. So we should choose to flee from sexual immorality for the power of oneness, but also because sex affects the whole person. Sex affects the whole person. This idea Paul is trying to get at is a vital one that you and I don't fully grasp or understand because we don't have an understanding of the Greek language the way that Paul did and his his congregation would. So when he has this aspect of this sin of sexual immorality, is a sin against your body, the Greek word that's used there is soma. And soma does not just mean the physical nature of someone. Soma is all-encompassing, the whole person. It affects everything within you. Soma is a powerful word that is used through Scripture to define the whole of us. It is emotional, physical, and the spiritual reality of ourselves, not just the physical. But if we don't dig deeper into the words of Scripture to understand what does he mean by this, we'll miss this point completely. Warren Wiersbe sums it up well when he says, Paul warned that sexual sin is the most serious sin a person can commit against themselves, for it involves the whole person. In essence, Sexual sin is a sin against our complete being. It's a sin against our complete being. And this is why he says it's so serious. This is why he says it's something that we must flee from, avoid. And that word flee in the Greek means run away as fast as you can. Don't look back, don't remain, go. When the enemy brings about the temptation of sexual immorality, run away. Don't dwell on it. Don't don't allow your mind to continue to wander, but just go. That's pretty powerful words. And it's because sexual immorality, sexual sin, affects our whole being. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. Garland says this, also left unstated throughout this discussion is Paul's assumption that a person is not a combination of incompatible parts, spirit and body, held together in an unpleasant tension. As a consequence, sex is something that involves the whole self in surrender to another. This is an important aspect that we need to cling on to as believers, whether it's a screen or another person, there is a sin against our whole being. It affects our connection to other people. It affects our connection to the Lord. Secular studies are even showing that it has a, a, an effect of desensitization about looking at other people and seeing them in a different light. Men who are constantly in pornography or sexual immorality no longer see women as people. They see them as objects. And vice versa, as for the female population in our culture, pornography has become an increasingly uh, part of their li- an increasing part of their life. And you think it's only just men, but no, the statistics show in our secular society, it continues to grow amongst females as well. There's a desensitization to people as people. And we've seen that effect on how men treat women and women treat men in our society. Because it affects our whole being, not just one part of who we are. When we pornify sex, we diminish the full weight of its implications. But when we demonize sex, we don't talk about it, or we only mention the bad things and never talk about what its design is for marriage. We miss the full beauty and the meaning that it has. Because I grew up in the purity culture, I was terrified of sex. I did not have a good biblical understanding of what it was. I think we miss the boat for many teenagers in that. My generation was one of the highest sexually active generations since the past. And I think it was because even within the church, there was not a good understanding of why sexual immorality is bad or how to be redeemed in the midst of it. Paul is very clear about why we are not to be sexually immoral. Now, here's something that's very interesting about A.W. Tozer. He said something that shocked the church in the 1960s, he said something that was totally abhorrent to the 1960s church, but it was actually culturally true from the scriptures and from Jewish uh, Jewish history. He said that when we look at the idea of sex, it is what we he would he titled spiritual intercourse. That the only way to understand our oneness with the Lord is to look at sex within marriage. Because there is a oneness, there is a connectivity that is deep, that is intimate, that is real. Now, when he would utilize the word spiritual intercourse, he was asked to stop saying it. And he said, no. The Bible's full of this example that talks about oneness not just in marriage, but our oneness with Jesus? Would you agree that we are one with Jesus? The only way that we can understand it with our physical mind is the idea of being so intertwined that we cannot be separated. The Bible says that when a man and wife come together, they are one. And so he refused to stop saying it. We might still feel today that it's an awkward statement. But we are to be one with the Lord. And sex in marriage, the way God designed it, is a beautiful thing. We should choose also to flee from sexual immorality because the divine resides within us. We have a new life as believers where the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. He enters our soul. He enters our emotions. He enters our physical life. He is present within us. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. He pitches his tent as what the Greek language would come to, and how we understand that is that we have a house within us that we have the Spirit of God within. And he desires to direct every aspect of our life. He desires to be in control of all things, that we surrender all things to Him. Yet there are aspects of our lives, whether it's sexual immorality or other areas of sin, that we don't want to surrender to Him. But we need to in order to experience the divine residing within us, the full impact of what that looks like. His presence in our lives makes us, all of the difference. But when we begin to sin, with, we, we begin to kind of shut him into a smaller room within our house and say, mm, ah, I want to do my own thing in this aspect of my life. Yeah, I'll surrender all my money, all my stuff, all my future, except this one spot I don't want you to touch or deal with. It's mine. How often do we do that? I know I do it. Because there's aspects of my life that I want to be in control of. The Lord desires control of all things, that we surrender all things because the divine resides within us. This reality should drive us to seeking out the areas in which we have in our lives that are not yet surrendered and give them over. He lives within us. Finally, we should choose to flee from sexual immorality because we are to honor God's image with our whole self in verse 20 he says for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body in your soma we are to honor god's image we are to glorify him with our soma our whole being our complete self As we go into the world, if our complete self is honoring the image of God and displaying the beauty of who He is, it's transformative. But often we don't let Him in every aspect of our lives. There are images of ourselves that we want to maintain, and we don't want our entire soma to reflect or honor His image. We are to glorify God with our whole self. Here's the question. Is every aspect of our lives, it's challenging for me and I must ask myself, is every aspect of our lives honoring the image of Christ? Are we glorifying Christ in our Soma? Or are we just giving him pieces and bits here and there? The goal would be that we surrender all things. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been knocking on the door of your heart about the issues of sexual immorality in your own life. Listen, when we slip and fall, the Lord is there to redeem us, to surrender to Him that which we have been struggling with, to let it go. The Spirit of God, if you are a believer, resides within you and can bring you to a place of victory from a place of loss. What the enemy meant for evil, the Lord can turn for good. Amen? So if the Holy Spirit has been knocking on the door of your heart, whether it's sexual immorality or other areas that you've not surrendered, deal with it today. Don't wait. I think it's often we like, oh yeah, that's a really good sermon. I'm going to go home and reflect on it. And then we watch Netflix and forget everything that we read in the Bible. The Lord wants to deal with us today. So you can deal with the Lord here together at your, at your seat. If you really feel convinced and convicted that you need to come and confess before the Lord, come to the front seats. If you are saying, you know what, I need to have someone pray with me because I'm really wrestling or struggling, come to the altar. And elders, we're here. Uh, we will pray with you. And if the elders' wives, if there's a, a woman up here could come and pray with them, that would be, Uh, the best, I think. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you desire to be glorified in our whole self. The areas that we do not have surrendered to you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we will surrender those to you this morning. That we will not leave this place without dealing with what you are asking us to deal with. Thank you for your love that covers all sin. That you can transform and redeem any person from any sin. That is remarkable. Thank you. Amen, Jesus.